Good morning, everyone. want to add my welcome to, uh, gosh, we've had a lot of people up this morning, hey? I guess it was Jonathan and Mark and Dan and Victoria. You guys have had a lot of good mornings already, but I'll add one more. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 12 if you're not there already. We're going to pick up in verse 20, and as you're turning there, let me pray. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, this is not something that we ever want to take for granted, that we get to gather together week after week to sing songs that extol the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, to have our hearts recalibrated around the truth of the gospel, to have our affections corrected and pointed in the right ways. Uh, truly, that's a work of your spirit. That's a strength of the church, and we praise you and thank you for another time to do that. We also thank you, Lord, for this time that we can gather around your word, the Bible, that is the only book that when we read it, it reads us. We ask and pray now that by your spirit, you would confirm and strengthen us in everything that is good, that you would convict us of our sin, and that we would find assurance in the saving power of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 20, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Now, as Victoria was reading through this, did you notice that there are a lot of characters in this passage? A lot of names. Okay, look at, the, look at the passage in front of you and let me point out the names that are included. So right off the top, we have Herod. That's Herod Agrippa, the king of that area at the time. We have this guy named Blastus. What an awesome name, eh? Look, I think you guys should name your kids Blastus. There's Barnabas and Saul. There's John Mark. There's Simeon. There's Lucius of Cyrene. There's Manian. There's... Elimus, who's also called Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. And there is Sergius Paulus. That's a lot of characters to pack into just a few short verses. But I want you to notice that not a single one of those people is actually the main character in this account. Did you notice the main character as Victoria read it? The main character in this account is Nothing other than the Word of God. Now think about that for a moment. The Word of God as a character in a narrative. Well, isn't that a Christian commitment? We believe that the Word of God is living. It's active. It's sharp. Those are all things that the writer to the Hebrews said. Paul told Timothy that it is profitable and so when we read through this account, we see that it is the Word of God that is the main character. Look at chapter 12, verse 22. The crowds claim that Herod speaks the voice of God. They wrongly claim that he is speaking the Word of God. Chapter 12, verse 24, we're told that despite all that Herod can muster, that the Word of God is resilient that it increased and it multiplied. Chapter 13, verse 5. You getting the hang of this? Barnabas and Saul proclaimed the word of God in Salamis. Chapter 13, verse 7. Sergius Paulus sought to hear the word of God. Friends, right at the onset of this passage, we are 
confronted with this truth. This truth that the earliest church knew. A truth that we must constantly reclaim. The authority of the living, active, sharp Word of God. Well, this is something that over the course of church history, you know, the church sometimes embraces more and less. Sometimes the church departs from the Word of God. Sometimes it reclaims it. It was approximately 500 years ago that the Protestant Reformation broke out. And one of the main characters was one of my favorite guys named Martin Luther. He led the charge. He led the charge in bringing the errant church back to the Word of God. It was this seminal moment, not only in the history of the church, but in the history of humanity 500 years ago. And when Martin Luther reflected on his life and his life's work, this is what he said. He said, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my dear Philip, Philip Melanchthon, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. Luther said, I did nothing. The word did it all. Look, I want to spend these next few moments in this sermon Going through this, this series in Acts, Acts chapter 12 to about midway through Acts chapter 13. And what I want you to see in this passage is that the Word of God is the main character doing work in the lives of all of these characters that we've just heard. And in each of them, there's something for us to glean today. So let's jump right in. Look at chapter 12, verse 20 to 25. Here we're going to see Herod versus the Word of God. Well, here Herod versus God, made manifest in his opposition to the Word of God. As we drop into this moment, um, we are seeing what is actually like a foreign relations um, trade agreement beef between Herod and the rulers of Phoenicia. Now, you'll see in your text there, it refers to two cities. The two cities are named Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were the main cities of the Phoenician Empire. The Phoenician Empire had a long-standing trade agreement with Jerusalem, with Israel, and with their kings. In fact, the cedars that were brought over to build Solomon's ta uh, tabernacle came from the Phoenician Empire. And in exchange, the Phoenician Empire would get goods like food and all kinds of supplies. That was the trade agreement. But something went wrong in this agreement at this moment. We're not told exactly what it is, but look at verse 20. It says, something went wrong and Herod was angry. He felt like this deal had degenerated to the point where he was getting the short end of the stick. And so he... Somehow, again, we're not told how, put the squeeze on these guys. And so the Phoenician Empire sent an envoy to Herod. That's what we're told in these verses. That these guys 
so felt the squeeze from Herod that they like knuckled under, they came to visit Herod, they came hat in hand, they're like, man, you name the terms, whatever. And so a new deal is struck. But it's a deal that's favorable to Herod. Now look, this is um, a moment when Luke, the physician and the historian, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote the Gospel of Luke and also this account in Acts, we see that he's really done his historic homework. Because all of this that I'm telling you right now from Acts chapter 12, verses 20 to 25, is captured not only in Acts, in Luke's account, but it's also captured by a secular historian from the first century called Josephus. Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jewish People, captured this exact moment. And you know, I got to tell you, friends, um, in one sense, it doesn't really matter to me when there's external corroboration to Scripture because the Bible is God's Word. But it's kind of nice when it happens. You know, if you're if your non-Christian friends are asking you questions about the reliability of Scripture, you can point them to moments like this where the external accounts from Josephus perfectly align with the account in Acts. Josephus records that it was on August 1st, 45 AD, that this envoy was sent from Tyre and Sidon to visit with Herod and to squash the beef. So what happened was, everything is resolved. Herod is no longer angry. He's happy. And he decides to host a days-long celebration at the amphitheater. He has parties. He has concerts. He has plays. He has all kinds of celebration to, to demonstrate that he's happy with the ratification of the new agreement. At the end of it, Herod's feeling pretty full of himself. Josephus records in detail that Herod set up a throne in the middle of the amphitheater on the last day. And in Scripture, we're told that Herod puts on a robe, but in Josephus, we're told that that robe is um, woven with threads of silver. So that when the sun shone on that day, Herod is sitting in his throne. He's wearing this robe that is glistening in resplendent beauty. He opens up his mouth and he speaks. The sun is shining off the silver in his robe and everyone that was gathered, they concluded that they were not seeing royalty but that they were seeing deity. Look at verse 22. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not a man. Verse 23. Herod made the fatal mistake of not correcting them. You see, this is a real pitfall for anyone in any form of leadership. We too readily let our Failures go to our heart and our successes go to our head. The crowd cries out, this is the voice of a God and not of a man, and Herod does not correct them. In verse 23, the angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord, comes and because of 
Herod's hubris, his pride, he's struck down. He becomes worm food. That's verse 23. Consider that passage over and against chapter 10, verse 25. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago that it was Cornelius who sent for Peter back in Acts 10 to come to his household and to preach the gospel. And when Peter arrived at the household of Cornelius, Cornelius and his servants all fell down at the feet of Peter when Peter was declaring the word of God to them. They fell at his feet and they started worshiping like a god. And what did Peter do? He did the opposite of what Herod did. He was like, no, 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 guys, stop. You got this all wrong. He said, I'm just a man. Don't worship me. Stand up. Well, Herod Agrippa meets this moment that he's had coming for a long time. He's had an entire career of being a terrible, a fearful, a dreadful ruler. But he makes this fatal mistake. He has civil authority over all the people under his care, but he started to believe his own press. The crowds say that his words were the words of God and not the words of a man, and he doesn't correct them. And so in this moment in Scripture, we see that Herod, in his heart, has come to believe that he is a God. That's what it means. He has placed himself over the word of God. He's a leader who has said, my word... My ideas, my edicts, my perspectives, my opinions, my rulings are the word of God. And so he has tried to make himself into God. Well, Herod fundamentally opposed the word of God. And I want to suggest to you that he opposed the word of God in at least two different ways. The first one was direct opposition. Do you remember over the last couple of weeks when it describes how Herod brought his vengeance and his wrath to bear against the earliest church violently? He killed James, he imprisoned Peter, he sought to kill more. That's direct opposition to the word of God. But what we see in today's passage is indirect opposition to the word of God. He opposes God and God's word by claiming that his word is the word of God. It's a big problem. And it's not a problem that was relegated only to the past. Where do you see this in the world today? Civil leaders who are passing themselves off as God's who are acting as though their edicts, their ideas, their opinions, their rulings are the word of God, opposing God and his word. They, they do so, in some cases, directly through persecution. Now, thankfully, we have yet to see any real persecution in North America, right? 
What we've seen in the West is still quite mild compared to what Christians historically and around the world have experienced. But what we see more clearly here in the West is this indirect opposition to the word of God. Where our governing rulers have mistaken their role and their authority. They think themselves to be gods and they usurp the throne and the authority that belongs to the Lord God and to his word. Well, here in this passage, we see that that's not going to go very well for them. Herod dies. He's eaten by worms. Verse 24. But the word of God increases and multiplies. Look look at this closely. So Herod, he opposes the word of God by claiming that his word is God's word, and so he's functionally claiming to be God. He is worm food within five days. But the word of God is transmitted and passed from generation to generation for over 2,000 years. And it not only has just been transmitted, it has been growing, increasing, and multiplying by doing what only the Word of God can do. Convicting of sin. Showing our need for a Savior. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, causing us to believe in Jesus Christ. The Word of God increases and multiplies. Okay, so... I want to apply this this passage about Herod, and I got to warn you, it might get a little uncomfortable. Um, You can take me to task afterwards, okay? Um, What does this mean for us today? Well, look, if we're going to understand a passage like this, and if we're going to apply it to our lives today, the first thing that we need is a proper understanding of the order that God has put in place in his world. It was the other Protestant reformer named John Calvin, who in his institutes talked about how God ordains ministers. God ordains ministers in two distinct spheres. God ordains ministers in the church. God ordains his ministers as civil magistrates. And both are not only ordained by God, both are intended to serve the Lord God by serving his word in their respective spheres. Both of these ordained ministers in the church and in the state are ultimately answerable to the Lord Jesus Christ for right stewardship. Both the leaders in the church and in the state, they do their God-given job well when they rule under the word of God. They promote godliness and virtue. They restrain evil and sin. However, in both spheres, there are examples where either church leaders or the civil magistrates just like Herod, put their word over the word of God. 
And when they do so, they are functionally claiming to be gods themselves. Their fate, like Herod's, is certain doom. So what should you do? If you find yourself in a situation where God's ordained leaders in the church or in the civil magistrate in the secular world are not coming under God's word, but they are claiming that their word is the new word of God, what should you do? Well, let's talk first about the church. Church family, I mean this sincerely. It's not hyperbole. If anyone stands in this pulpit and preaches their own opinion or their own idea and not the word of God, rebuke them. Come up to them after church with two people and show them from the word of God where they're wrong. That includes me. Please. That's what to do if a church minister claims that his word is the word of God. Use the authority of God's word to correct him. Well, what about the civil magistrate? Well, what you ought to do in that case is to use the means that God has given you in his good order. So when you have a civil magistrate who is behaving as though he thinks that he is God, he's no longer living under and stewarding the authority that comes from God and his word, then you need to find a way to deal with that. And as Christian men and women, we believe that the Lord God not only has appointed ministers in the church and in the secular sphere, but he's also appointed mechanisms. And those mechanisms are good. So let me be very specific. If you see a civil leader who, like Herod, is claiming that his word is the word of God and he's not stewarding the word of God, but he's moving forward in wickedness, claiming to be God himself, use the mechanisms that God has put in place. Vote. Appeal to the lesser magistrate. Write a letter to your MP. These are all mechanisms that have been put in place by God in his good governance and his good order and his good system. And finally, in extreme cases, disobey. When the civil magistrate claims to be God and requires things of you that are against the word of God, as a Christian man or woman, you must say no. Now, let me, let me talk about that for a moment. So there are two different types of civil disobedience that are required of Christian men and women. The first one is passive civil disobedience, okay? If there is a ruler who, like Herod, claims that his word is the word of God, even though it's counter to God's word, the first thing that you do is passively disobey him. So, so let me give you an example. If the civil government makes abortion legal, then you passively disobey by not doing it. That's passive civil disobedience. If, however, the federal government or provincial government said, 
look, we're not just going to make it legal to have an abortion. We want a population control policy and every family is only allowed to have one child. Therefore, now you must abort every child after the first. Well, that no longer requires passive civil disobedience. Now you have to exercise active civil disobedience. Do you see the difference? And it's all because the civil magistrate who should recognize that he is ruling under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ by the word of God has started to think like Herod that he is God, that his word is the word of God. And so it demands either active or passive disobedience depending on the circumstance. I, I could give you other examples you know what, I'm going to be here after coffee. I want to move through the passage. Come talk to me after the service for coffee, and I'll give you some more examples. So Herod forgot that he was supposed to be a servant of the word of God in the civil sphere. He thought himself to be God, and so he became worm food. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This ought to give us great hope. The church of Jesus Christ will remain on earth until Jesus returns for his bride. And the word of God will increase and multiply until that day. As Christians, we bear that word with us. We preach it. And we pray that our civil ministers in Canada would repent and come under the word of God. We pray that they would wake up every morning and begin every decision by asking the question, what does God's word say? And we pray that for them, for the good of our nation and for our people, but also for the safety of their own souls. This is Herod versus the word of God. Herod loses. Look at verse 25 to 13.3. This one's a lot quicker. So the word of God is increasing and multiplying. How does that happen? Well, it happens because an ordered church is having a prayer meeting and the Holy Spirit tells them to set aside Barnabas and Saul and to pray for them and commission them and send them out from the church in Antioch. Friends, that's how the word of God increases and multiplies. It was, a, it was a profound and powerful moment last Sunday when we called our growth group leaders forward. Did you notice that? And we set them aside. And we prayed for them. And you prayed for them. And now they didn't leave the church in Antioch and start going on big mission trip. They, they left from here and went into their homes where they're now carrying out ministries around the word of God. So the word of God is increasing and multiplying in their homes and in your lives through our growth groups. That's verses 12, sorry, chapter 12, verse 25 to 13, 3. Okay, the last chunk, chapter 13, verses 4 to 12. So Barnabas and Saul have been commissioned in Antioch. They've now been sent out by the Spirit. They've gone to Seleucia. They've gone as far as Cyprus. Verse 5 tells us 
that John is also with them. Do you see that in verse 5? And so they go into synagogues and they proclaim the, the word of God. That's right. See, this whole account is about the word of God. Having covered the entire island, they meet up with another civil magistrate. Look at verse 7. What's his name? Sergius Paulus. And Sergius Paulus is accompanied by his household magician. This false prophet named Bar-Jesus, Elimus. That was very common practice back then that the rich guys would have part of their entourage. They would have a magician or a seer or someone who could lead them in what decisions to make. And so this is what Sergius Paulus is doing. He's there and he has Bar-Jesus, Salamis with him. And the word of God is traveling out far and wide from Barnabas and Saul. So much so that Sergius Paulus says, go get those guys. I want to hear the word of God from them. Look, right off the beginning of this account, we see that Sergius Paulus, although he is a civil magistrate, he's nothing like Herod. Sergius Paulus wants to hear the word of God. Verse 7, it says he's a proconsul. He's an intelligent man. And so he calls for Barnabas and Saul because he has this deep desire to hear from God's word. Look, Sergius Paulus is already starting to shape up as a man who recognizes that any authority he has is from the Lord Jesus Christ and under God's word. He is a man under authority. He wants to hear the word of God. Verses 7 and 8, he's intrigued. He's like, guys, tell me more. Give me more of this word of God. He receives the word of God. Well, that poses a direct threat to Elamus, doesn't it? Because Elamus sees his entire livelihood shrinking away and slipping away. Verse 8, he opposes Barnabas and Saul. He's like, you guys have got to go away. If you guys don't go away, I won't be able to keep my livelihood. If, if Sergius Paulus begins to hear from the word of God, then he will have no use for a huckster, trickster, magician, false prophet. Verse 9. So Saul, who here for the first time ever is called Paul, was filled with the Spirit, looked intently at Elimus, and then proceeds to do something that's very un-Canadian and very un-Anglican. Look at verses 10 to 11. Can you imagine saying this to someone else? He looks intently at him directly and he says, Elamus, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon Elamus and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. 
First thing I want you to see here, friends, is that as Christian men and women, sometimes direct speech is necessary. Sometimes you have to, out of love, say the thing that nobody really wants to hear, the thing that's going to make you unpopular. But you have to say it boldly and starkly because you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you love that person and you see them on a trajectory for death and hell. Verse 10 to 11. Look at verse 11. Paul uses this phrase. He says, The hand of the Lord is upon you. Do you remember hearing about the hand of the Lord a couple of weeks ago in Acts 11? In Acts 11, we are told that as the church in Antioch was beginning to grow, that the hand of the Lord was upon them and their numbers grew massively. So we remember that the hand of the Lord is both the hand of blessing, as we saw in Antioch, and the hand of judgment against Elamus. The same hand that blesses also judges. Say it the other way around. The same hand that judges also blesses. Look, this is a really important point for you today if you're a Christian man or woman. Both blessing and judgment are expressions of the love and mercy of God. They both come from one hand, the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord that judges is the hand of the Lord that loves and blesses. You see this in the passage, right? You're reading along and you're like, man, this hand of the Lord upon Elamus, that seems cruel. But it's actually kind. God's judgment comes upon Elamus in order to bring him to a place of repentance. Perhaps you've experienced this at some point in your life. Where a point of pain will arise. And as a Christian man or woman, you look at that and you think, man, I'd never want pain. But the hand of judgment that the Lord brings upon me is actually because in his severe mercy, he loves me so much that he refuses to leave me in my sin, destined for death and hell. The hand of the Lord is both the hand of judgment and the hand of blessing. Well, there's only two possibilities when God's judgment falls on us. The first is like Elamus, whose response to Paul is implied in verse 11. Right? He, he doesn't repent. So darkness falls upon him, and he has to be led around by the hand. Look, don't miss the irony in this. Elamus was the prophet, a false prophet, but he claimed to be a seer. Now he can't see. He would lead Sergius Paulus around with all of these false prophecies. Now he has to be led around by the hand like a little toddler. All because he hears the word of God and rejects it. That's one possibility when you're faced with the judgment of God. 
The second is verse 12. Then Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The word of the Lord. So Sergius Paulus um, hears the word of God from Barnabas and Paul. He sees the hand of the Lord in judgment upon Elamus, and he repents and he believes. Not all civil leaders are wicked Herods. Some of them are Sergius Paulus's. But when we see in this passage both Herod and Sergius Paulus, we have to acknowledge that they were both powerful men. Neither of them was accustomed to bowing his knee to anyone, much less to the word of the Lord. Herod, when confronted with the word of the Lord, he believes that he is God. And so he is killed. Sergius Paulus hears the word of the Lord, bows his knee to Jesus as Lord, and says, there is one who is greater than I. Look, all good civil magistrates and ministers recognize that they are appointed by the Lord God, and they do well when they live under the rule of God's word. So let's conclude this. In one sense, we see these two powerful men, Herod and Sergius Paulus, contrasted by their response to the word of God. But in another sense, these guys are just men. They're just dudes. They're just regular folk like you and me. And so the question is not one that we can hold off at a distance and just say, how should civil leaders respond to the word of God? It becomes personal. How should I respond to the word of God? How should you? Well, the civil magistrates, they have to recognize that their authority comes from the Lord God and from his word. They must be humble or be humbled. And the same is true for us. Perhaps you are taking stock of your own life and you're beginning to feel anxious because you think, man, R.D., there are so many areas of my life that are not under the lordship of Jesus. There are so many things in my life where I know that I'm not living under the word of God. Varying degrees of rebellion against him. Well, see, friends, this is the good news of Scripture. That Jesus is a loving and gracious Lord who on the cross has made a way of amnesty for all who rebel against him to return to him by the shedding of his blood. Where on the cross he paid the price that every rebel has earned and deserved, the price of death for you and in your place. Look, that's the story of the word of the Lord. That's the story of the entire Bible. 
It's not be good. It's you are forgiven. So this morning, pray that God would grant you a tender conscience. One that is quick to repent and return to him. Thank God for any sense of sorrow that you have over sin and rebellion in your life. Because that's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Repent and believe that good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Indeed, there is nothing new under the sun. And so your word, inspired by the Spirit and inerrant, still speaks to us today. God, I pray that you would grant us such a deep conviction that your word is living, active, and sharp that we would bow our knee under the lordship of Jesus as we hear from his word. Even and especially in those areas that we wish weren't so in scripture. I ask God that as we turn our hearts to your word day by day, we would find Jesus, he would find us, that we would be assured and strengthened in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.